Welcome to Healthcare Happenings, a One Digital Employer Advisory Podcast. It's no secret that healthcare is complicated, and to prepare for the road ahead, business leaders need transparency and access to information in order to develop the best health benefit strategy. Our team of compliance leaders are here to shed light on the latest developments on the Hill and share their collective vision for ways to improve the healthcare experience. So welcome back. We've been talking about the current healthcare system, its current uh, landscape, its challenges, kind of what's coming forward in the future. And last time we were speaking a lot about unnecessary care and what that does uh, to the system. We honed in on that particular topic and its effect on costs and on the delivery system. So when we think about the big topics and the drivers of our current uh, situation and maybe thinking in the future. What what what's the next big thing? I, I sort of like to talk about what Scott brought up a couple of weeks ago. The fact that there's a growing shortage of primary care physicians and uh, specialty physicians, and and so if we look at the context of unnecessary care and to address that issue, that's clearly part of the answer to how we increase capacity, but at the same time, it brings up a lot of questions about why is there a shortage of physicians? How do we correct that? What are some of the complications of it? Maybe what are some of the contributions to it? And uh, at the same time, I think we need to kind of look at how technology might solve some of that. And so uh, that to me would be something, Scott, that we could banner around and, and say, why don't we look at it from that perspective as well? So, Ron, I'd just like to jump in. Like, why is it important that we have, you know, kind of this primary care physicians? Like, how does that help us kind of in our healthcare landscape? Well, well, in my opinion, if we go back to the discussions we've had about unnecessary care, the, the focal point of all that is the primary care physician, because you get a lot of duplication of services, you get a lot of referrals and that type stuff. And I think we're going to have to move back to a more uh, collaborative system where individuals aren't paid fee for service, but are actually paid to produce outcomes. And that uh, they aren't there to generate whatever business they can through fee-for-service. So the primary care physician is going to be critical in being able to coordinate that care among all the specialties and particularly for the chronic individuals. And so when you start talking about a shortage of that, it just seems to exacerbate, in my mind, the entire uh, system. It, it deteriorates in, it, in itself, it kind of eats itself, I guess would be a way to put that. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, kind of that basic medical care really helps kind of detect, you know, issues early on, helps prevent them. It kind of seems like on our healthcare field, you know, the premiums really on kind of that care for those that when they do get sick. So there's not a lot of emphasis on that, you know, primary or preventative type of healthcare approach. Yeah, I think that you're talking about, Samantha, you're talking about, you know, the fact that the primary care is the foundation, right? So this should be where everything jumps off. You're not going to start with, um, you know, you shouldn't start with specialists. If we had worked on um, and been more cognizant of basic fundamentals of healthcare, um, seeing and getting advice in in a good way from primary care and not only when we have a problem, right? Right. 
how much could that alleviate in the future? And I know, Scott, you talk a lot about like the determinants of health and all of these uh, and kind of this whole focus on living a better quality life, right? So I I wonder how that plays in and then what's the demand then on on who delivers that? It's got to be these primary care docs, right? Yeah. So it's, it's, when you look at uh, wise investments in healthcare and building that foundation, that unfettered access to a primary care physician and developing a long-term sustained relationship with a, with a given physician or a given practice is really the cornerstone of um, effective healthcare cost management and healthcare outcomes management. Um, it's, it's really hard to imagine a system where we, we, we skip that step and go directly to specialty care, which tends to be incredibly expensive. And what's really interesting when we look at the claims data in our, in our plans that we work with through our employer groups, very rarely is primary care an extravagant cost center um, relative to the costs that are incurred when we, when we get to specialty care and when we get to uh, hospital charges and facility charges. Um, it tends to be a good investment from a plan perspective, but Really, we want to we want people going to primary care physicians on a routine basis, establishing a relationship, always knowing their numbers, and really getting ahead of potential issues that could be manifesting. Um, regardless of what the health condition is, I think most people of a reasonable mind would agree that early detection generally leads to better prognosis prognoses and getting ahead of developing issues is usually going to lead to better outcomes. And the number one ally within the system that most people are going to have is going to be that primary care physician. So when we consider shortfalls in that primary care, it gets a little bit concerning as to where do we go uh, to, to expand access beyond where we are right now. And, and Scott, you know, ironically, it seems like that legislatively we're continuing to build a system that is less attractive uh, in terms of, of, you know, interesting practice. You look at the fact that probably now 40% of their time is dealing with paperwork. Um, Annette, you sent me the New York and Colorado single payer system bills the other day, and I read through those. And in Colorado, as an example, they're going to compel them to accept the payment in full, or they're going to start fining them. And, and so they create an economic environment that in my mind is uh, you're going to face almost professional poverty, if you will, or you're going to play ball or you're just not going to play at all. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So this all creates some of these new concepts create a, will create even a bigger strain. If we're already saying that there's, uh, not, probably not enough primary care docs to deliver the kind of thing that you're talking about, Scott, and what you're saying, Ron, Sam, same thing about um, this is the person who you should have a relationship with. Think about, um, you know, uh, I is it weird that I spend more time and my financial advisor knows more about me and my family than my physician? Even from a health standpoint, it's like, it's a crazy concept, but the system has created this churn and burn. Like I have seven minutes with my doctor. They don't know if they ever saw me before. I have no relationship with them, nor do they treat anybody in my family, which we know how much of our health care comes from genetics, right? So, there's no cradle to grave treatment anymore. Very rarely, like they're with you a lifetime. They're invested in helping you live your best life. Um, 
because we just don't have the, the, we don't have the wherewithal to do it. We don't have enough people to do it. And, and Ron, now, if you're saying, um, and we're certainly not going to start incenting people to do that, we're going to actually disincent so we even have less of that. I don't, I don't know. Uh, yeah. I think that's the yeah. I think the ability to at least attract new physicians into primary care or even specialty care is going to be an issue because the problem is exacerbated now by the older physicians. Um, you know, the population's getting older, and so are the physicians. So you're getting greater demand, and you're getting the physicians retiring more quickly, and we're just not we're not taking the right steps in my mind to, to attract the kind of talent we need in the future. And I think the estimate now just on primary care physicians is, is by 2024, there'll be, uh, I mean, 2032, there'll be like 65, 70,000 shortage just in primary care alone. So it's going to get worse. So, so when I hear all of this and I, and I think about it to make it, um, relevant for our employers, the employers that we work with is, is really, it's going to become incumbent on employers to stake out their primary care claim. Um, I envision that employers are are going to have a significant interest in the next five years or so in figuring out a very specific primary care play within their health and welfare benefit plan um, to insulate themselves from this broader systemic issue of of uh, a, a ticking time bomb of a shortfall of primary care physicians and, and almost um, uh, taking a, a modicum of control over whether that's going to impact your business and whether that's going to impact the bottom line and performance of the health plan and, and viewing that as a critical strategy for, for um, putting yourself in a financial uh, financially stable position in perpetuity and, and, and really being able to navigate um, the cost of the health and welfare benefit plan. I really think this is going to become yeah. a critical consideration where, whereas in the past it's it, it, in many instances, it's something that we all have taken for granted or, or we've all just taken as a fact that it's going to be there. It's good. It's, it's a resource that we'll always have. But now with this insight that we have that there is this shortfall, on the horizon uh, that could become pretty substantial, it's now's the time to start thinking, well, what can we do to insulate ourselves either through using technology platforms or concepts like direct primary care, on-site, near-site clinics, whatever that may be. And I suppose we should mention, I mean, I think nurse practitioners and expanding access is gonna be part of part of that answer. And I think it's also important to say that, that this idea of having a primary care physician who you have that relationship with and and really coordinates all of your care right. in a salary environment really does work. I mean, we've had clients, a nationally uh, recognized furniture company in a rural area. They hired their own physician. And the key was as they captured more and more of the population that worked at that facility as primary care, we saw dramatic drops in trend. We saw dramatic drops in utilization, you know, duplicative services. And even if health stayed stable, we didn't, you know, we didn't have the ability to measure health outcomes, but it's it's an interesting and a phenomenal thing to see. And so we know there are answers to the cost of health care, but to get the shortage issue addressed is going to be another critical issue. Yeah. 
And, and you know, I want to go back a minute too. That's those are good points, right? The, the other thing you were saying, um, you're talking about, you know, just it's not attractive to go into. Like everybody wanted to be a doctor when, you know, what do you want to be? Ooh, I want a doctor. I want my son to be a doctor. I mean, you know, there were all these. This is something to aspire to. And just in the past two days, I've talked to two individuals who just graduated, finished their undergrad, were doing pre-med and said, looked at that cost and the timeline and said, "Mm -mm, not worth it. I mean, and especially for how much I'm going to owe on the back end for how much it costs and the commitment I have to have sort of this unsure future of what does that really mean to me? And and if I'm going to be told I can only make a certain amount of money, why would I do that? So I don't know if you guys are, have you had some similar conversations? Um, What are you guys seeing in that particular area? I mean, how do you start attracting these people? Yeah. I mean, that's the, when I look at other countries um, that have implemented uh, more robust government payer programs than what we have in the United States, um, where essentially, you know, whether it be single payer or some type of hybrid partnership between private insurers and, 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 and the government um, medical school is a major focus of the training of physicians is a major focus in establishing those systems. And to put it quite bluntly, if you are in Canada and you're trying to become a physician, it's it's not a business. The training of physicians is not a business. Um, it's subsidized by the state. Um, McGill University, which is one of the finest medical schools on the planet, uh, one of the first medical schools on the planet is, is wholly subsidized. Uh, you might have to pay maybe a couple thousand dollars to become a doctor, but relative to the cost and an outlay that a physician needs to make in the United States is night and day. Now that comes with a trade-off where the, the, the spots are very limited to become a physician in Canada. And it's not easy to get into McGill and they, and McGill is still an international institution where you're competing against people from all over the world. So, uh, so there are downsides to that subsidization that can also lead to shortfalls in physicians and, and all the stuff that we're talking about too. But in the United States, the, the business of becoming a doctor is exactly that. It's a huge business. Um, when you look at the way that we train physicians, uh, first of all, the, the tuition to medical school is extravagant at most at most. Uh, universities and most uh, medical schools across the country. Of course, there are some that receive substantial government grants and they're able to do tuition deals, but the vast majority of doctors are going to be graduating with a ton of, with a ton in student debt. Um, Then they go give free, all almost free labor to a hospital for the next 10 years of their life or whatever, whatever that runway looks like, depending on what they decide to do uh, where they're getting paid um, almost a stipend to, to, Get, perform very valuable services for the hospital. And then after all that, in the interest of crews and your student loans, now it's time to make money. You know, if you're weighing your your options, going the path of a set rate uh, in, a, in, in, in primary care can be significantly less attractive. So the question I have when people talk about, oh, we want single payer, we want public options, what are you going to do with medical school? You know, if a medical school is charging almost $100,000 a year, is it just going to be the case that we, the taxpayer, say, okay, we're going to subsidize them at that price because that's not the way it works in other countries. The, the business never developed to that point to where that's the level of subsidy. So it's a, it's a, it's a very challenging question and it yeah. would, it would yeah. require uh, 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 some substantial revisions to the payment system in order to make that, that work here. And, in the United and States. Scott, even to that point, think about the fact that, that one of the reasons for the shortage is the older 
age of the physician population. So they don't even mm-hmm. carry that debt, but they limit the number of Medicare patients they'll accept because financially they can't accept a high you know, intensity of Medicare payments because they can't afford to stay open. And this all starts with the fact that we have a limited access to even trained physicians. You know, that's a, there's a cap on that. So, so like you said, there's a lot to really address and dig into this. And, and it, it just seems like the system is going in so many divergent ways that ultimately end up in a bad way. Yeah, we haven't seen anything. Yeah, I will say, um, to your point, I'm starting to see bills that, you know, like a lot of these omnibus bills, whether it's um, the American Rescue Plan Act or the up and coming, whatever the next one is, um, they're they're adding money in there and allocating funds for physicians. But when you read what they're allocating for, it it doesn't appear to be the right things, right? Yeah, it, may be a um, it appears to program. be only very limited or um, only if they're going to, to provide services in very limited areas. So it's not, it's not a systemic um, sort of solution. They're like these band-aid things that I'm, I'm not sure what they really do, nor how they really attract people. So, and they're only um, offered for, again, certain, only in certain populations or certain areas. So, um, yeah. yeah I, you know, it, it begs the question when I look at some of the innovation that's going on in health, Healthcare generally, um, it begs the question whether this is going to be an issue that's solved in in the in the paradigm that we all know, or it's going to be something completely outside of it. You know, in my state of Pennsylvania, where I live, we have two payer providers, um, two companies that are health insurance carriers, and they also are providers. They own the hospitals, they own the facilities. And both of those payer providers have their own medical schools um, where they where they train physicians to work that 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 you know get tuition deals that they stay within the system after they graduate. You know, is it going to be the case that down the road we see innovation in in disruptors like Amazon, where one day, who knows, Amazon could have a, a medical school where they where they train their own physicians. But when I look at when I look at problems like the one that Ron spelled out, where we're looking at tens of thousands of physician shortfall over the next decade, the reality is that whether we have a supply of individuals who fit the criteria to even overcome that shortfall is to be seen. I mean, it's a special type of person who goes to medical school, right? It's, a, it's, it's usually a, a certain level of intelligence, a certain level of academic acumen that, that tends to be rare within a population. So trying to overcome that, you know, we may not be able to overcome that even with most, some of the more interesting models. So where does the conversation go from there? Does it go to how can artificial intelligence make a physician's practice more efficient. For instance, you know, one of the problems that you hear about when you talk to primary care physicians is that the medical chart is too long. Uh, There's too much information in the medical chart. Perhaps one day down the road, uh, there will be an artificial intelligence platform that can mine medical charts and bring up the most relevant data based on the data that they're seeing in the doctor's office that can improve efficiency. Um, Perhaps it's the expansion of telemedicine and taking people, you know, into other other arenas. But these numbers are very concerning. And I think it's going to take some pretty substantial innovation. If if there's one point I'm trying to make here, it's that uh, it's going to take an all hands on tech type of uh, innovation to make it work over the next 10 years. I think, Scott, yeah, to that point, I I do think that 
technology is going to play a significant role in this problem, solving geographic disparity. Because if you're talking about making it attractive to attract somebody, a professional wants to be around a lot of peers. And so the rural area is going to have a hard time attracting those. So technology is probably the answer there. And we'll probably rely on technology the way we do today to try to address things like inflation. Yeah, that's a good point. So, so now, you know, now that we, I'm so sorry, this is like, oh my gosh, what (laughs) is to come? The world was going to end. Um, But it is something that we really have to look at. I think, you know, going back a little bit, Scott, to what you said, employers, I mean, half of the, half of the population gets their insurance coverage and access and are driven to certain primary care doctors and network, et cetera, through their employer health plans, right? That's half of the population. So thinking about that, what an employer does to really solve for this primary care, number one, just to make sure that the health health well-being of their employees is good. Because if we take care of that, then we can get some performance outcomes at work. They're going to show up, et cetera. You want them to and want it to be easy, want it to be affordable. Um, so they're going to have to look at some different things than they've done in the past. And sometimes that takes a little leap of faith. Um, but I, I would venture to say everybody keeps running on the same hamster wheel and it's not going to have any different changes. So one of the things I would love to do is start thinking about um, – and uh, is what are these alternatives? And there are some that exist, right? You've mentioned some here. There's uh, this huge expansion to telemedicine. Um, COVID brought that to be uh, something people were really concerned about. And even the government, oh, we can't allow that for Medicare patients, right? Up until COVID happened. And now, oh, we have to have that, right? This now becomes a treatment. So it, it's kind of forced this hand in some different ways of delivering health care. Um, so what are some of the other innovators that we're, we're starting to see out there? So um, I, uh, tell us. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Ron. Telemedicine, for sure. And that expansion, like you said. Yeah, and it holds. So, so let's let's talk about. It. There may be a period of time that we need to force people to change their relationships, so we can aggregate like a business to funnel into one individual primary care physician can, that can help the company align their objectives and their employee objectives to have good health outcomes. So we may see, we may need to see some of that, a transition or evolution into that. And telemedicine is probably the only way you can get that aggregation. Well, and I also think, well, isn't that kind of like companies who've who've been able, been large enough to have on-site clinics, same type of idea. But now we have people all over and we have people working from home and different states, et cetera. So our workforce is, is more transient. It's not all located in the central for everybody. So which really necessitates this telemedicine play, right? Right. Yeah. What else? Yeah. What, I, what I'm really interested in um, 
telemedicine for sure, virtual care for sure. But I'm also really fascinated, Annette, to your point uh, for our clients in these these models that have existed in really large companies for a long time, uh, where they have you know on-site gyms, they have on-site clinics, um, uh, they have on-site pharmacies. You know, if you work for a, 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 a twenty thousand employee company, it's often going to be the case that you're going to have some pretty robust resources on-site um, that remove substantial barriers between your employees and and, and access to care and access to extraordinarily important services that just aren't practical in the smaller group markets and with smaller employers when they go out and do it themselves. But I'm really interested in these new, these new conversations that are occurring among small businesses where they're looking at what, what if 10 of us go in together and we rent some office space and we hire and, and we partner with a, with a third party that can help us source a nurse practitioner that can help us source um, a, a relationship with perhaps a remote physician um, that can help us source perhaps uh, a, a deal with a local pharmacy or whatever whatever it may be. And we can moneyball the experience of working for a large company in aggregation with smaller companies. Yeah. Um, and then the other the other piece of the innovation that, that I get really excited about on our end when we work with benefits is how good we are at how good we're becoming, should I say, at, at identifying top performing primary care physicians. And, and what, what I mean by that is you want your employees going to physicians that practice evidence-based medicine. Um, you want physicians who are sticking to the most current guidelines as they're updated. For, for instance, they might, you know, you might have a physician that uh, is a little too trigger happy with ordering an MRI uh, when an MRI may not be uh, medically necessary based on the evidence of and the way that the individual presents within the office. We want to identify who the individuals are who really stick to the current practices and uh, and make the recommendations within uh, that that are based solely in the literature and, and evidence. Um, they're not making subjective recommendations. They're not churning and burning. They're not sending the, to high cost providers. We're getting really good at identifying who those performers are, and we're able to incentivize employees selecting those providers within the context of the plan. And usually, the way we are able to do that is with yeah. by adjusting the amount somebody will pay to go see one of those providers versus one who may be less efficient. So, yeah. so I, I get really excited with what the that how we're able to use data to put mechanisms in place to incentivize plan steerage to high performing yeah. primary care physicians. But Scott, that emphasizes your point that it's going to take the engagement of the business because the insurers for a long, long time have known who the efficient providers were and the inefficient ones and their networks have never changed. Yeah, we, we all have had the conversations with em, with employers before, where we sit down and um, the convers they, they get very concerned when they hire a key employee who utilizes a given provider, and they get very concerned that that provider is going to be in network for that key employee. Um, and, and and there's never really a focus on whether that provider is efficient for the plan or what 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 the, that provider means for from a plan cost perspective. The conversation tends to hinge on how wide is the network, not how efficient is the network. Um, so that conversation is 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 starting to happen more in earnest, where we're looking at efficiency over size. Um, uh, obviously, we want to cover geographies, but within geographies, how are we how are we uh, quantifying the value of, of who we're referring our employees to? And I think you would agree, though, that fee for service influences the, the clinical efficiency that's applied to the patient. 
And so until we remove that, we still have that that bias. So when we're saying fee for service, right, every time I go, there's a fee for that service, right? So it doctors would like you to come back more often then, right? So they're incented in that way. Um, I can only spend 10 minutes with you. So make another appointment. We'll charge you another fee and you can come back and we can talk about it. Or we can look at the next test or the next this. And so, Ron, to your point, we drive costs and we drive utilization. And how much time could be alleviated from the physicians that we have if it, if it were different, right? Do people really need it? And also if we had consumers who actually really had a relationship, et cetera. So I want to delve into a couple models, uh, a couple different types of models over the next um, few sessions in looking at um, some things that are completely different. Why is, and same to your point, why is primary care part of insurance? Insurance was originally designed to, to help you with the things you couldn't afford. Most people can afford a doctor's visit if there wasn't a thousand things padding the cost, right? Yeah. So that would be something you could plan for. Planning for chemotherapy or, you know, transplants, no, right? And, and when a insurance was originally provided it was it was for that purpose and it's it's grown to cover everything that you should be able to budget out of your weekly income right uh, and so that's driven a lot of this excess cost utilization and people uh, all the unnecessary care that you're talking about too, that you talked about last time around so um, in our next one Next week, we're going to talk to Dr. Brian Hill, who is um, the founder of a, a company called Hip Nation, which is a group of independent primary care doctors that don't affiliate themselves with insurance with the with your insurer. They're not part of a network. They're they allow you to come to them um, individually, and he'll explain kind of this model, which we're seeing grow across the country. There are very there are particular states where it's actually an initiative where they're creating huge networks of primary care doctors that don't have insurance affiliations, and it's done not on this fee for service basis. So next time we're going to explore a little bit about that and talk, and then we'll come together after that session for the one after that to really kind of break it down then and talk about what are the pros and cons of, of this and um, how might this be uh, a solution in the future? Yeah. And that maybe, maybe uh, our listeners on this, on this little podcast that we're recording right now should just to get their mind in the right, right frame of references uh, should think about blockbuster to Netflix, moving oh, from a blockbuster video to Netflix. And and that's, that's what maybe we could use to set up uh, our call for next week is mm-hmm. think about what we're going to talk about next week as a move from blockbuster to Netflix. Yeah. I love that. That's awesome. Thanks Bargain everybody for your time today. And thank you all for tuning in. Staying on top of compliance today can be the source of great concern and frustration. Our dedicated team of attorneys and experts look around the corner on your behalf and deliver the tools, education, and resources needed to help you plan for the future and protect your employees and business every day. You can access additional resources, employer advisory sessions, and podcasts on our website, onedigital.com. Stay safe and healthy, and we'll see you next time.